Psalm 112, beginning of verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady, and he will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted on honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have prepared our hearts through song and through scripture. Now as we sit under the teaching of your word, mold how our hearts feel for you, think about you, and how we view you. May we submit to your commands and gladness and delight in your ways over our own. And I ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Eric Maddy, and the Elders Council has asked me to come and step in this week as both Ryan and Dan are on vacation. It is my privilege to bring to you the Word of God this morning. Uh, Not to be alarmed at or anything, if you hear something within my voice, it's just me being silly. I had a fan directly on my face all night long, so you wake up a little bit more throat tender, so don't, don't be concerned about that. Um, doing what I can with a little bit of tea. So. <laughs> um, today I want to talk about uh, a concept in the Bible that we see over and over and over again. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard about it, and yet it's a concept for a lot, sometimes a lot of us to nail down what this is. But Scripture continues to bring it up you begin to realize God's trying to say something and perhaps I need to consider what he's saying a little more intentionally. So today I want to answer the question, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Let me start by looking at the overall psalm that we're looking at. Psalm 112, we run into one of these acrostic uh, psalms where the first letter of the sentence is the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now if we did this in America... The alphabet, uh, this first verse may sound like what Dr. William Bin suggested back in the 1800s when he wrote about the psalm. He actually went through and did this with American, uh, with American alphabet. He starts out with hallelujah, that stayed the same, but then A, all blessed is the man that feareth the Lord. B, being filled with delight in his commandments, and so on and so on. You get the picture. But this psalm extols the benefits of those who fear the Lord. And it's quite a list to go through. Some of the more comforting benefits include verses 6 through 8. And kind of continuing with Ben's acrostic, it goes like this. L, lo, he shall not be moved forever. M, memorable shall be the righteous man forever. N, no evil tidings shall he fear. O, on the Lord depending, his heart is fixed. 
he planted firmly in his heart, he shall not fear. You, quake shall he not until he sees his desire on his foes. With such a firm, stable faith and a heart that is virtually free of anxiety, this concept of the fear of the Lord needs to find its footing in us here in the 21st century. If the fear of the Lord truly is the beginning of wisdom, as God's word says, we want to be wiser than we were yesterday. We want to walk better and deeper in these concepts, not just theologically, not just to be able to espouse them, but actually to allow them to take root in how we feel as Christians, how we think as lovers of God, and how we worship in spirit and in truth our holy heavenly Father, Creator, Redeemer, and Judge. Now, many people feel like the Bible is, is cut in half. That, that the, you have the Old Testament, you have a wrathful God. And in the New Testament, you have a loving God. And as such, we can mistakenly think that the Old Testament's main command is to fear him, and then the New Testament's command is to love him. But nothing could be further from the truth. Look at me at one of the earlier mentions of the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 through 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Note that fear and walk and love and serve, they're all there. And they're emphasized on the command to relate to God and not just fear him. And then if we flip over to the New Testament, we see the fear of the Lord in the New Testament. Look with me at these verses. Colossians 3.22, bondservants are encouraged to walk with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 2 Corinthians 7.1, we are encouraged to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 1 Peter 2.17, show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. And of course, Acts chapter 9, verse 31, Luke accounts that when Saul came to, came to Christ, the church was strengthened and grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. When Jesus was predicted in the Old Testament in Isaiah, it said that he would have a delight in the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is not just an Old Testament phrase of piety or devoutness, but rather Scripture shows that it's a blessing of the new covenant. And for the new covenant believers, which is who we are, it's rather interesting. Jeremiah 32 and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Very familiar phrasing here. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. For their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. So in summary, we carry in us by the Holy Spirit a planting of the fear of the Lord. You see, the blessing of being born-again believers is not only a heart of stone turned to become softer. It's not only that we were spiritually dead, that we are now spiritually alive. 
that not only were we orphans, but now are adopted by Father God. Not just lost and found, not just sinners and forgiven, but we've been implanted a fear that will make us, that will not make us run away from the Lord, but a fear that will be put in our hearts that is actually to keep us from running from him. This feels counterintuitive to how we view fear, right? Jeremiah continues, oh, actually the Lord continues in Jeremiah. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will, forever, I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity. I will provide for it. Let's just pause here for a second. Is fear the right word here? I mean, to define that there is a fear we experience when we see the goodness of God, is that even the, are we even saying it the right way? All words have shortcomings. And the word fear definitely has baggage, especially within our culture, especially this time of year, as we see the word fear as being afraid. But listen to what Matthew Henry says. He gives us a comment about Psalm 112 in a picture. sums it up like this. He says that he that fears the Lord as a father with the disposition of a child, not of a slave, delights greatly in his commandments. The word picture Henry here puts out there is that we are to have the disposition of a child's fear of his father, not the disposition of of a slave afraid of his angry master. You see, a slave afraid of his harsh and unyielding master, a lot of people feel that describes God, that his wrath is actually an evil-driven motivation, and anxiety describes that kind of fear. And as believers, we can feel that way if we live our Christian life under a performance-based obedience, trying to earn God's favor, trying to withhold God's wrath by being so, so good that I'm going to save myself. Otherwise, suffer the consequence of the judgment of God whose character we don't trust and feel that is evil. Now, the picture of a son's fear of his father has its own baggage, right? But, but simply stating it this way, a good son in a good relationship with his father, who is loving and kind, has a fear of offending or dishonoring the one he loves. Let me say that again. A good son in a good relationship with a kind and loving father has a fear of offending and dishonoring the one he loves. Why? Because in the eyes of that child, his father is his world, a source of security, a source of love and acceptance. Like King David, we as believers at time have to pray what he prayed. Psalm 86, 11, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. That was in that previous few verses out of Jeremiah. We need that singleness of heart when it comes to living our lives in the fear and the love of God. So, so now that we understand that the fear of the Lord 
is not just an Old Testament thing, but rather it's a biblical concept through all of Scripture. Let me give you a working definition of what the fear of the Lord is. And from there, there I'll break down the main points of, of the rest of our time. I'll put some notes in the back specifically, but you'll have them up here as well. This definition comes from Christian teacher Paul David Tripp, and he says this. He says, fear of the Lord means that I carry around with me such a deep awareness, awe, and reverence of the power and the holiness and the wisdom and the grace of God that I would not think of doing anything other than living for his glory. Don't worry, we're going to go through that a few more times. I don't have the speed to get that down. But this is such a good working definition because it reminds us, as mentioned in Jeremiah, the Lord gives us a fear of him so that we actually don't turn away from him. Not in a sinful, afraid of his wrath type of fear, but in delighting in living in him as sons and daughters of the king. His glory and behaving in a way that acknowledges him. This definition not only identifies three elements of godly fear that we're to exercise, but also pinpoints attributes of God that we're to grow deep into. So we're going to look at that. Let's look at the first one, number one. We are to exercise a deep awareness of God's power, holiness, wisdom, and grace. To be aware of something is the simplest start to any change in our life. For example, when we're aware of our health issues, it should be, right, the time in which we say, okay, I need to make some changes in my life, right? When we are aware of communication problems, maybe a slip of our tongue, something that we are offending people, something, maybe arguments, well, that's, we make the changes, where we become aware of what we're doing, and we, so we are able to talk better and more respectful to people. Well, spiritually speaking, Paul did this in Romans. Romans 12, he said, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies in a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. You see, at this point in the grand letter of Romans, God, through Paul, had laid out 11 chapters, systematically a full-orbed understanding that his mercies and good news is the, that is founded in the obedience of Christ going to the cross, dying, and raising again. God is making them fully aware of what salvation truly is about, that salvation follows God's mercy, not human effort. And Paul is saying, in view of God's mercy to grant forgiveness, in view of his grace to save by faith alone and Jesus alone, in view of his imparting the spirit of adoption to us who cry out to Daddy God. God now calls them to action in 12, and we've been hearing that the last few weeks the action points, the commandments that, that are to come out of that foundation. We can't obey the command to present our bodies as a living sacrifice without a deeper awareness of God's mercy. So with the awareness of the fear of the Lord, out of these attributes of power and holiness, wisdom and grace, we are most familiar with grace. And it makes sense. Why? It's because it's the most accessible concept we understand. Because we understand our shortcomings. We understand our need for Christ to be graciously forgiven. Plus, we carry the concept of un, God's unconditional love that he puts on display for us. Because his grace goes hand in hand with his love. 
but to dive a little deeper into the other attributes of his power, of his holiness, of his wisdom that truly causes us to intentionally live for the glory of God and have our hearts undivided and delighting in his commands, that is to live in the fear of the Lord. It takes a little more than being aware and knowing facts about these attributes of his power and his holiness, wisdom and grace. No, we also need to honor God's all-knowing presence. Next slide. A deep awareness of God's power, holy wisdom, and grace by honoring his all-knowing presence. Now, to honor someone means to act in a humble way that acknowledges someone else's strength, character, and influence in their life. And we see it all the time, don't we? You watch the draft, and someone gets drafted, and they get up, and they say, I just want to thank my mom and dad. I want to honor my coach. They, they sit up, or sometimes... The believers that say, I'm going to honor the Lord Jesus Christ because at that moment they're being honored for maybe their talent or something else inside of them, but they're pointing to someone else that changed their life. They're pointing to someone else that actually strengthened them. So let me give you some food for thought about the all-knowing presence of God. First of all, Hebrews 4.13. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. First Kings 8.27. But will God indeed dwell upon the earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I have built. Job 34.21. For his eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees his every step. You see, these verses confirm that, God, yes, God is with us. And yes, God is watching us, but not from a distance. But very intimately paying attention as all of us are naked and exposed in his sight. And no, he's not watching us in order to learn something new like a detective trying to figure out some ploy or trying to ask these questions. He's not Columbo asking these things and questions. The Lord is all-knowing of our thoughts, our motives, our actions, public and private, words and deed. And yes, we will be held accountable in our life. So to honor his all-knowing presence means to be deeply aware of his power is made perfect in our weakness. Therefore, we can live in obedience. To honor his all-knowing presence means to be deeply aware that when we ask for wisdom, he will grant it that we will walk uprightly and actually take the high road in that very moment when things get dramatic and you want to be sinful and at home or at work or in family, that he will give us the words to say or not say. And he, that means that in his presence, when, when you're trying to console somebody, you don't know what to say. When you stand before kings or you stand before brothers and sisters, he is going to give you the words to say. Or he'll give you that wisdom to direct you to do something that will minister to his glory. To honor his all-knowing presence means to be deeply aware of his holiness in the place we live, work, stand, and sleep. Therefore, we control our bodies in ways that are holy and honorable, not in the ways the pagans do who do not know God 
our behavior is to acknowledge his pure, unadulterated presence as being right here and now. To honor his all-knowing presence means to be aware that his grace is sufficiently immediately available. It will be a grace that is sanctifying, satisfying, safekeeping, and securing whatever you are in need of in the time you need it. It's a very humbling truth to realize what Martin Luther said all those years ago, that we live our lives before the face of God. The Latin phrase was that, was coram Deo, meaning in the presence of God. So that's the first exercise. To have a deep awareness of God's power, holiness, wisdom, and grace by honoring his all-knowing presence in our life. Number two. We need to exercise a deep awe of God's power, holiness, wisdom, and grace. And this very next verse is so familiar to you all who have grown up in the church. Try not to, try not to phase out here. It's important for us to see it. Exodus 29. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground to the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed, they were filled with awe before him. This verse exemplifies that the people of God were not afraid of God because it says that they believed in him. But the verse says the result of that awe was that they trusted him. The Israelites expressed, experienced an amazing moment in their life of delivering power of God, and the instant reflex consciously is that they would be in awe in the incredible majesty and rescuing power of God. You know, we have been created as beings to behold awesome things. The exercise of awe is a lost practice because we say everything is awesome. I remember in sixth grade hearing that first word, first time, awesome. Well, that's a great word. And we did like some kind of art crafty thing with it. <laughs> but we use the word awesome for things that are so small compared to what God is. We have substituted awesome experiences and sights and sound. We have attributed that word to things to misplace God. To satisfy our own selfish wounds, we, we lower what that really truly means. The problem is misplaced awe will never satisfy it. If you want a little bit more on that, down in the um, library there is a book called Awe by Paul David Tripp. And he talks about how not just what I just said now, but, but he just talks about how we continually misplace awe in our life. And therefore, we live our life less than what God would want us to. But we are created to be in awe of God. Don't settle. Don't settle. I found myself stuck there last night, in fact. I, a friend of mine tweeted, I don't know why I'm sharing this, not in my notes, but... A friend of mine tweeted, he was in Galesville. Rick Flair, a wrestler, was in Galesville, and he met him. And I said, awesome. 
<laughs> he was just excited to get a picture with him, talk to him. But I walked away from that tweet. I'm like, oh, I want to take that back. It's too late. Because <laughs> I attributed something so medial than what God shows us in Scripture. To truly live in the fear of the Lord and to have that awe, we need to do one thing. We need to trust in God's ever-powerful providence. To trust means to have confidence in the character and word of another so as to depend on their strength and their wisdom and their ways. To trust God's ever-powerful providence means to be in deep awe of God's power to orchestrate and work in such a way that it's beyond our comprehension but we can still trust him to work all things together for his glorious, for his glories and, and for our ultimate good. To trust God, God's ever-powerful presence means to be in deep awe of his holiness. The Lord is set apart from us and, pos- and possesses what I can only describe as something called an otherness. He is not like us. He is an otherness. Psalm 145.3 proclaims both the greatness of God and then states that his greatness no one can fathom and his greatness is unsearchable. That is true awesomeness. We are to rejoice that his thoughts are not our thoughts and that his ways are not our ways. And for anybody who has ever said, well, if I was God, praise God that we're not, right? Because his ways are not our ways. Because God does not counsel with us over his affairs of the universe, nor does he ask us to chime in on who he should save and who should not. Praise God that he is not like us and rather that he is holy. Trust in God's ever-powerful providence means to be in deep awe of God's wisdom. You know, for many of us, hindsight is twenty twenty. We can look back on something, and we can maybe see how things worked out five years, two years, six months. How many people are Monday morning quarterbacks? One, two. Okay, thanks for admitting it. (laughs) Monday morning quarterbacks know what should have happened Monday morning. You see, clearly after the fact is the best way we can see God's wisdom this side of eternity. Yet, in his divine wisdom, there are many things that God doesn't reveal as to his wisdom, and they're considered in the Bible the secret things. Why did you allow this, God? I don't don't see it. I don't understand it. It's difficult. And while we don't understand on this side, I I can unequivocally say you can trust God even with the secret things that he holds and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, continue to acknowledge him and be in awe that he will make our path straight. To trust God's ever-powerful providence means to be in deep awe of God's grace. We are to stir this awe when we participate in the Lord's table. Just as the Israelites saw the amazing power that God unleashed on the Egyptians, we remember the great power God used against sin and death. 
The exercise of God's awesome delivering power on our behalf compels us to trust him. It is an awesome grace that we reflect on Christ's body being broken for us. It is an awesome grace we reflect on Christ's blood being poured out for us. By Jesus' stripes, we are healed by the blood, and our deepest sins are forgiven. So that's the second exercise. We are to exercise a deep awe of God's power, holiness, and wisdom by trusting in his ever-powerful providence. Number three, the fear of the Lord is to exercise a deep reverence for the power, the holiness, wisdom, and grace of God. Hebrews 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Revering God means to hold him in the deepest respects. Time and time again, in Scripture, when we see that God's people don't revere him by doing their own thing, there are consequences. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Moses, in anger, hit the rock instead of speaking to it, which is what God told him to do. He wasn't able to go into the Promised Land. The Israelites had short memories, always failing to remember and fear the Lord. And for their disobedience of the commandments of God, they were attacked by their enemies and were dispersed as a country. Earlier in Hebrews, God says that he disciplines the ones he loves. It is a corrective discipline, unpleasant for sure, but loving and training us to learn to revere him and to honor him. To delve into this a little bit deeper, we need to admire his most holy personhood. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Ignore that last part. But I will say that last part. God is unlike us in his personhood. For he has perfections that are free from flaws limitations. To admire God's most holy personhood means to hold deep reverence and respect for his power. We are to revere him as powerful creator, but he is not that alone. He is also most powerful redeemer and most powerful judge. We are to stand amazed and humbled that the characteristics like these have loving motives and motives of true justice. To admire God's most holy personhood means to hold deep reverence and respect for his holiness. He is beyond compare and beyond measure for us to ever figure out. Yet he bends low to our stature, reaching out to us, using our words so that we understand him better, so that we might know him and make him known. To admire God's most holy personhood means to hold deep reverence for his wisdom. Another whole sermon can be written about that, about why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We can yet settle that his wisdom, though may look foolish to a watching sinful world, is to humble the mighty and proud, 
is to provide and protect for his children. I mean, isn't that true? When we see that time and time again, the walls of Jericho go down, not because they attacked it, but because they walked around it seven days, seven times on one day, blowing horns, walls fall. <laughs> Foolishness in the eyes of those who are powerful to humble them. I mean, what, where's the wisdom where God says, I'm going to take the, the Israel army and deplete them by those who take the river water and slurp it with their hands versus those who dunk their face in to get the water? Those are the ones. They're, they're gone. We're going to take the rest of these, and we're going to use this group of, of army people. Foolishness. But in God's wisdom, it's not about pointing out how great Israel is. It's pointing out how big Israel, Israel's God is. To admire God's most holy personhood means to hold a deep reverence for his grace. Familiarity with grace will breed contempt and produce a rebellious disposition in our heart to God's commands. Presumption of grace can also breed false security for the truly unsaved. We are never to take for granted God's grace flippantly and run into disobedience. We are to admire his grace, to hold deep reverence for it, so that our hearts will worship with great delight that he has saved us. So that's the third point. To exercise a deep reverence of God's power, holiness, wisdom, and grace by admiring his most holy personhood. Now this topic of the fear of the Lord can be rather daunting. And I hope that I've given you some tools for you to think on. And that's where we have to start it with. But let me give you just a few Closing remarks. On our website, I encourage you to take these notes, print them out, think them over. Slow down your life in order to have God make this a deeper part of who you are. Because awareness alone can be like, oh, I got to remember that on Monday morning. I got to remember that on Wednesday afternoon when I have that meeting. I got to remember that Thursday evening when I'm tired and I'm about ready to lash out of Whoever, slow down your life. Pray Psalm 86, 11. I, I, I have preached this previously at a different church. But I have been praying this prayer since. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. And read the Old Testament with a new perspective. Just the mention of the different things that we see in these accounts should cause us to be an awestruck of God. Yes, it can confuse us. Yes, it's like, oh, okay. And maybe even growing up in the church, we hear these stories, and we think they're just stories, but they're actual live accounts and experiences of live events. People really died. People really were revering the Lord. People really experienced trueness of these accounts. Sometimes we can lose that. We are to be looking at the Old Testament with awestruck display of the awestruck display of God's majesty, splendor, and holiness, and should stir our life to godly fear. Begin to ask God to increase one of these three things: awareness, awe, or reverence. To the point that you love Him that you live wiser than you did yesterday. 
and you walk uprightly in the joy of the Lord, that the commands are no longer burdensome, but, oh, I understand now. Those are just some ideas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for implanting the fear of the Lord into our souls. Forgive us for not cultivating it as we should. Slow us down as we may grow deep. Restore our sense of awe with you. Let us hold deeply in awareness and reverence for who you are. May we delight in your commands as we walk in them. And may our lives reflect your otherness to the unsaved, that we may give you credit and we may give you glory. We ask this in Jesus' name and all. You know, over the last three weeks, we've had some very practical preaching, starting with Dan a few weeks ago, talking about awakening on moral lethargy. John last week talking out of Peter about making efforts in our life to add to our faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. And me today talking about the fear of the Lord. You know, getting these type of messages every week, you begin to wonder, how, how do I apply this? I mean, every week it's something new. Maybe God's talking to you every week, <laughs> Let me just encourage you that our congregation is bigger than just one or two people, that perhaps one or two of these sermons wasn't exactly for you, but God spoke specifically to you two weeks ago or one week ago or today. Focus on that. The Lord is calling us as a congregation, you can see within these messages, of greater Christ-likeness. Let's remember what God is doing, not just one thing and another thing. Oh, yeah, then the Bible study has this going on. It's what God is calling us as a whole congregation to respond to, and that is to love him more, to obey his commandments, and to glorify his name. However that might be over the last three weeks that God has convicted you, work that out. Repent. Come to him.